Informed consent, getting to yes, is editorially independent content supported with advertising by Abbott. Welcome to our podcast, Informed Consent, Getting to Yes. I'm Marguerite McDonald of the Ophthalmic Consultants of Long Island in Lindbrook, New York. Our podcast is designed to pick the brains of key opinion leaders and successful high-volume surgeons to see how they talk to patients, how they get to yes, quickly, efficiently, ethically, but with a high conversion rate. And I'm your co-host, Rana Jaraha. In this podcast series, we're going to focus on how to explain risks and rewards of premium and elective technologies to your patients. Today, we're going to look at LASIK and SMILE. So, Marguerite, aside from yourself, who I'd like to point out did the world's first laser eye surgery on a human in 1988, a PRK, who are your refractive surgery experts for this inaugural edition? Well, ladies first, we have Dr. Carolini Rocha. Dr. Rocha is Director of Cornea and Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology at MUSC Storm Eye in Charleston, South Carolina. So welcome, Carolini. Hi, Margaret. Uh, thank you for having me. This is uh, great. MUSC stands for the Medical University of South Carolina. Right. We also have Dr. John Doan. Great to be here, Margaret. Love the invitation and really excited about helping out here. Well, thank you. And could you tell us a little about yourself? I am from Kansas City, work with a practice for the last 20 years called Discover Vision Centers. We have about 36 doctors do uh, ophthalmology, optometry. Um, also, I'm on the clinical faculty at University of Kansas Department of Ophthalmology, where I lecture about once a month to the residents, have a great time there. And also, I'm the incoming president starting in January for the American European Congress of Ophthalmic Surgery, or ACOS as we know. And finally, we have Dr. Ron Kruger. Could you please tell the listeners about yourself? Sure, sure. So I, I'm a professor of ophthalmology at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine, and a director of refractive surgery at the Cole Eye Institute of the Cleveland Clinic. I know you've had a wonderful experience with topography-guided LASIK. Um, how do your patients feel about it? Well, they're pretty enthusiastic about it. Um, it's something that uh, was approved last year in 2015, and here uh, we began in, in about February of 2016 and very quickly uh, adapted a high conversion rate um, to offering to, to our nearsighted patients. Uh, it's really approved for nearsightedness up to about eight or nine diopters with astigmatism up to three diopters. So it gives us a fairly broad range, but the key caveat is really capturing high quality topography maps that are in close agreement to each other. And do you think that it is an improvement over standard wavefront guided LASIK? Yes, and I, I previously have done virtually 100% of all my cases as a wavefront optimized uh, ablation pattern with very good results. Um, I had done a lot of pioneering work with wavefront guided treatments in the past, kind of made the conversion to wavefront optimized because of just how good that was. But those subtle aberrations, especially at the level of the cornea, is not something I could treat up until now. And so one of the simplest things I can tell my patients is, you know, what I used to do with really good success is treat your prescription dead on and, and, and get the right profile that gives you good quality of vision day and night. But here I can actually treat something more than just your glasses prescription. And so there's the potential to get you even better than glasses vision. 
do they find it uh, hard to understand the technology or do they ask you a lot of questions about exactly how contour vision LASIK works? Yeah, I, I think a lot of times when they're getting new information, you can't overwhelm them with too much. Um, I tell them what it's called. I say it's contour of vision because it treats the contour of your eye, especially your custom treats the contour of your eye. Um, but then I'll also indicate, I'll often have a map right in front of me and I'll say, this is a map of the front surface of your eye, which bends most of the light that gives a good focus. And there are subtle irregularities on this map, which is your specific signature or fingerprint of what your, your uh, curvature is like. And we're going to custom treat that curvature in addition to your prescription to get you, you know, the, the ideal sort of post-op result. And in many cases, uh, 30, 40% of patients can actually gain a line of better vision than their best pair of glasses. So you blend the contour vision uh, advantages into your basic uh, LASIK informed consent, if you will. Yes. You know, usually when I talk to them and say you're a candidate for LASIK, I'll go over all the details of what's involved with LASIK, that we're using two lasers, a laser to make a flap, a laser to reshape your eye. I'll talk about the categories of risk associated with it and how we mitigate the risk in order to get a good outcome. I'll talk about side effects that, you know, in the past there are things like halos and glare and dry eyes. Now those things are much, much improved, uh, significantly reduced with the newer technologies and give them an idea of what they might be able to expect post-op. And then I'll tell them, and we're doing something new in the last eight months or so, and it's the majority of our patients are being treated this way, and I'll tell them what's involved and uh, give them an opportunity to respond if this is something they'd like to pursue. Do you find that when you describe it as new technology that they find that reassuring, or does a certain percentage say, ooh, that's scary, I don't want anything new? Well, I try to make a point to say that um, the LASIK procedure that I do has not changed. All the steps that I do during surgery when I'm operating on them are exactly the same. So it's not like I'm doing something new they have to be worried about. It's just the profile of what's coming out of the laser is now different. And that's due to things that we're doing before the surgery starts, that we're doing extra planning and, and lining up and, and orientation and, and um, you know sort of verifying to make sure they get the right overall treatment. Isn't topography-guided LASIK also called TCAT? And doesn't Dr. Rocha also have a lot of experience in this area? Yes, it's called TCAT for topography-guided custom ablation treatment, and Dr. Rocha was intimately involved in the study that led to FDA approval. The results were fantastic. Like the, the patients, they're definitely seeing 2015, day one after surgery. We know uh, the outcomes were even better than the wavefront uh, guided uh, clinical trial. I think we were all shocked at how excellent the results were in normal patients. And of course, everybody is hoping to use TCAT on abnormal patients, people who, who can't wear a contact lens after a penetrating keratoplasty, or people who had RK a long time ago with irregular astigmatism. We all have lots of patients, patients who've had a corneal ulcer that left a scar and irregular astigmatism. What do you think the chances are that this technology will be used for those people? I think um, uh, topography guided is great for patients with small optical zones, patients that had um, uh, refractive treatments and refractive ablations uh, 
few years ago, and they have small optical zones and um, and the centered ablations. That it, those are the easiest case, I would say, to start in highly aberrated eyes. Um, in patients with scars, post-transplants, ectasia, uh, it's important to explain to the patients that um, we need to. It's a it's a staged treatment. Let's let's put this way. Uh, you may need to do that first treatment that I call just the therapeutic TCAT ablation, um, just to um, uh, make that surface better. And then sometimes you need to plan a second treatment to correct the residual refractive error. So as part of your informed consent, you mentioned the possibility of a second treatment. Do you tell that to normal patients or just the folks who have highly aberrated eyes? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think it's for patients with uh, highly aberrated eyes, it's it's all about patients' expectations, right? Uh, in patients with highly aberrated eyes, it's important to explain, yes, you may need a second treatment. In normal eyes, because the results are so amazing, sometimes I don't mention, oh, you may need an enhancement. However, patients with really high uh, astigmatism corrections. Um, and uh, sometimes even hyperopic patients, it's important to explain um, you may need an enhancement um, just to correct the, 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 the residual refractive error. It's interesting that both Dr. Rocha and Dr. Kruger are proponents of TCAT. What about Dr. Doan? Well, Dr. Doan is on the forefront of SMILE. Yeah, so we were involved in the FDA study for SMILE over the last GWIS five, six years. I've uh, been involved with SMILE as a, at least a concept since 2009. And as you mentioned, it was recently approved for myopia up to minus 10. So since you've been doing it uh, in Kansas City for a while as part of the clinical trial, there must be a lot of awareness. Do you get people asking, doctor, should I have LASIK or SMILE? You know, we, I think we're not quite there yet. We haven't been pushing it internally or externally outside of just, you know, education we did early right after approval. So right now, I think it's good that there's not a ton of awareness because we really, you don't want to have something that you're talking about but you can't deliver. So when it becomes available, that's a different uh, decision. I know we talked about uh, the fact that uh, you, uh, like myself, have sort of simplified the choices. Um, everybody in your practice, you said, gets a femtosecond LASIK flap and also gets a wavefront optimized LASIK. So can you sort of tell us what your informed consent sounds like for a patient? Sure, so obviously we, me being a, a prior laser vision correction uh, patient is so helpful. And I think having people in the practice and on your refractive team that have had prior laser vision correction is wonderful. Once they've had it, it just takes the educational level so much higher. I mean, I think it would be like, you know, being at a travel agency trying to tell somebody to fly or take a trip and they've never been on that trip. Once they've been on that trip, they become so much more, I think, uh, not just passionate about it, but become a reliable resource for whoever's planning on the next journey, that journey being laser vision correction. So certainly your coordinators, I'm sure, are providing them with uh, written material, uh, websites to go to. Uh, they probably show them short videos on an iPad. But um, the doctor, of course, has to have a short, concise, little pitch, if you will, informed consent that explains everything and is fair, but uh, 
you know, has some marketing value because you want the conversion rate to be good for the appropriate, well-selected patient. So if you pretend I'm Mrs. Smith, <laughs> tell me uh, what your informed consent for a LASIK would sound like. We try to figure out what is that person's problem? What do they want solved? You know, why are they there? You know, very quickly, if they come in and they say, you know, my friend sent me in, I'm not quite sure why I'm here. And we say, well, you have any problems with your glasses or contacts? And they say, no, I love them. We say, well, there's really nothing we're going to solve for you. But if they come in and say, my problem is this, I want to see without glasses, then we work through what's the problem, what's the solution, and what are the chances of success? And we tell them very clearly, you know, X percent chance you're going to be done single surgery. There's always a chance you might come back and need additional uh, help. And we obviously want to educate them, you know, based upon where they are in relation to presbyopia. That's interesting. Discussing LASIK is done in relation to presbyopia. If they're 20, there's hardly any discussion of presbyopia outside of something that happens at age 40. If they're age 38, you know, we start talking about monovision and what or what their alternatives are. I mean, obviously reading glasses. So we want to be very clear what our goals are for their specific situation. And I think that's what patients need to know. That you don't want to, I think, put everybody in a certain pigeonhole. You want to talk about what their problems are, what they want to solve, and how you're going to do it. And for us, you know, the vast majority of the time, it's going to be laser vision correction. So some surgeons use actual statistics, like your chance of needing an enhancement is X percent. Others will just say your chance of needing an enhancement is low. Uh, some surgeons will mention virtually every single possible complication short of alien abduction. And others will just say, you know, this is a safe and effective procedure and the chance of something going wrong is very low. Uh, where do you fall in that category, would you say, John? I'm probably more, in, in one sense, more of a mentalist. I told myself 20 years ago I would never say 0% or 100%. That means I can predict the future. But at, if you're a minus one, the chance of you need an enhancement is as close to zero as we can get. If somebody's a minus 10, I'll tell them, you know, there's maybe a 4 or 5% chance you may come back, even if it's a very, very small correction, you will need an enhancement. Carolini Rocha. Margaret, I used to go over every single one, but I think because of our, our results are so good right now, um, I explained to patients, you know, maybe night symptoms, um, um, uh, the rainbow glare, right? But it's interesting that sometimes patients, they don't complain of rainbow glare. They're just so happy with their visions that they um, don't complain, but if you ask, they say, oh, yeah, that's true. I'm seeing, you know, different lights. Um, I mentioned, but I'm not, especially for LASIK now, I don't go over the, you know, every single one. I tell them the most important thing that I'm thinking about is doing the correct surgery that day, and the number one thing that they, that I'm most concerned about is getting them on target. If they're not on target, we do enhancement. I do not go through all of the issues of infection and so forth that are virtually non-existent, but they know that they're there. If, it, if the patient brings it up, I will talk about it. But by and large, I tell them I'm swinging for the fences. If we need to do enhancement, the chances are very low and we'll address that at three months post-operatively. With LASIK, patients, they love to hear, uh, like the next day they can see fantastic. Um, um, I don't, one thing I don't 
talk too much about creating the flap. I'm cutting your cornea. Because, you know, some patients, they like, oh, my goodness, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, you know, just like a lot of details. Some, of course, they go online. They look at videos. But you just, you know, just try to uh, be very relaxed. And I always finalize, do you have any questions? Um, um, sometimes I talk a little bit about dry eyes. You know, dry, you know, we tr always try to treat dry eyes um, uh, before refractive surgery. I think that uh, for um, all uh, refractive surgeons, premium surgeons, uh, ocular surface optimization is number one. And then you have happy patients. Diagnosing and measuring dry eye is a critical part of the laser surgery process, as Dr. Rocha just mentioned. Absolutely. An upcoming episode will be focused exclusively on dry eye. Uh, also, we didn't talk as much about smile as I thought we would. That's coming right up, so smile. Now, patients spend a lot of time on the internet before they even come to see their surgeon, and a lot of them know about smile, which was approved not long ago. Uh, have you been faced with questions about smile, and how do you compare LASIK versus smile, or make suggestions to them about smile? Yeah, so smile approval is, is only a month old now in the U.S., and the questions are just starting to come where a few people have sort of asked about smile and we told them we're, we're going to be starting this process in the next uh, three months or so. There's a little rollout phase by which we can get started. We do have the laser. Um, uh, one of the conditions for using the laser is that you have to do a certain number of LASIK flaps with that laser before you're comfortable enough to dive into smile and we've done all that. So we're, we're kind of poised and ready to go. Probably the best way to phrase it in a, in a layman's terms, it's, it's almost like a laparoscopic LASIK. You know, you think about laparoscopic surgery where you're making a small incision to do some abdominal surgery or something along those lines. And of course, people like it because they heal faster. Uh, here, you're making a small incision to do the refractive change, uh, much less than, say, the, the full extent of a LASIK flap. And so, although the visual recovery is slower with smile than with LASIK, the comfort that patients experience is quicker with smile. And that's because there's just that smaller incision. And so there, there's a potential for less dry eyes. And if someone has a tendency for dry eyes, this might be a good procedure for them. Uh, probably one of the words of caution I would say about smile is it's, it's not the kind of procedure you can say, oh, because we're gonna preserve those front layer uh, anterior fibers of the cornea by, by going inside. Uh, because of that, now we can do more higher-risk eyes. I'd still be cautionary because ectasia has been seen after smile, and uh, it's one of those things that even though those anterior fibers are still there, you still need to be very cautious about the kind of patients you're recruiting. Besides people who have dry eyes to a significant degree, uh, are there any other differences in patient selection between LASIK versus smile? Well, right now with the FDA approval, it, it really is for myopic patients without astigmatism because the approval uh, process is such that it's going to be another two years or so before astigmatism will be included. So I think at this point, I might select patients who uh, have a little higher level of myopia, have pure spherical correction without astigmatism, uh, are looking for a comfortable, fast recovery in terms of comfort and ease, you know, maybe those who are more prone to dry eyes or other ocular surface issues, you know, if they are more prone to, um, you know, allergies or myobamitis or, or something along those lines, I think the small incision would 
be more favorable for the ocular surface. John Doan. And while we're on the topic, if you're incising less cornea, all the studies have been done, and now I think there are 190 peer-reviewed articles on LASIK. The biomechanical structure of SMILE has to be better than making a LASIK flap, and it's been proven in, in study after study. Well, that was very interesting, even if we strayed a little from strictly getting to yes. Well, patient selection and our evaluation of the technologies we believe in is also part of the process of deciding what we want our patients to understand in their decision making. I guess the emphasis is really on informed more so than consent. And we certainly hope you were informed. I'm Rana Jaraha. And I'm Marguerite McDonald. Please watch for the release of our next podcast and join us again. Informed Consent, Getting to Yes is editorially independent content supported with advertising by Abbott.